This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome celebrated author Harold McGee. In today's episode, we'll talk to Harold about smells his latest book, Nosedive, and we'll hear Harold's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to our first episode of Season 10 and in 2021. We send strength to everyone coping with the pandemic, especially those in the hospitality and food industries, and we send our gratitude to all the essential workers keeping us going. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia once said, cooking is not a particularly difficult art, and the more you cook and learn about cooking, the more sense it makes. That might be true for most people, but maybe not everybody, which will be one of the things we talk about today. And so Julia herself made sense of cooking by learning firsthand from chefs whose wisdom and skills were garnered from years of hands-on experience rather than study in the library or laboratory. And while she was a big advocate for learning by doing, she did have an intellectual thirst for understanding food and cooking. Why can we turn butter into milk? How does yeast make bread dough rise? Julia knew you needed to understand these principles not only to cook well, but to know why things went wrong. For example, you can follow one of Julia's very well-written recipes to a T and still end up with a failure. And it's not probably because Julia's recipe wasn't so good or didn't work for you. Often the culprit is something you couldn't have controlled, like how humid the day was or that your oven temperature reading was incorrect. Someone even more interested than Julia about going deep into the science of cooking is Harold McGee. Having researched and written this seminal on food and cooking, a book as revered by chefs and serious home cooks as Mastering the Art, several books and editions later, Harold is recognized as a leading expert on the science of food and cooking. Former columnist for the New York Times, Harold has been named Food Writer of the Year by Bon Appetit magazine, to the Time 100 list of most influential people, and is a visiting lecturer at Harvard, where he teaches, of course, on science and cooking. Harold's latest book, Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells, is a comprehensive examination of what creates smells. He joins us today to help us understand the nature of what we smell and how smell is fundamental to our food. Welcome to the podcast, Harold. Hello, Todd. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Well, it's our pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. 
So why don't we just start with like what the inspiration for the book was? And in particular, I'm really curious, like, why did you personally feel that smells needed to be explained, you know, down to the molecular level? <laughs> well, uh, I've been writing about the, the science of food and cooking since the 1970s. And for that whole time, I've been especially interested in flavor, which is what gives us, you know, so much of the pleasure of, uh, of eating and even of cooking, actually. And uh, so I'd, I've been curious to know what it is that is responsible for that experience. And in the 1970s, we really didn't have much of an idea. There were theories about uh, about how taste and smell work, but no real solid information. And by the 2000s, that had changed. And it, it, of course, uh, flavor is essentially it, it's uh, th there are lots of aspects to it, but the two main ones are our senses of taste and smell, taste on the tongue and smell in the nose, and. Um, uh, we had had finally gotten some information about how it is that the sense of smell works, and it it simply reinforced uh, our kind of general sense that smell is really the the sense that gives us the tremendous variety of uh, experiences of flavor. Taste gives us a handful of very basic sensations: uh, sweetness and sourness and bitterness and so on. But it's really smell that gives us the tremendous variety of smell of uh, of flavor experiences, so that we can actually tell the difference between an apple and a pear, and and an onion and a potato. <laughs> uh, so I I really wanted to uh, to delve into that since we'd become uh, much much better informed about what was going on in the 2000s. And I thought I would write a book about flavor. Uh, that turned into being a book about smells because that aspect of the experience uh, turned out to be uh, so much richer and uh, took, took me on a journey that, that really included the whole world, not just foods and drinks. I guess I hadn't realized in you're delving into it and you you frequently reference like when there's deep research on a subject and when you had trouble finding altogether that much but i guess i hadn't read closely enough that a lot of this is really new at least in the course of your career or course of history information that w when did sort of information on breaking down flavor by smell and and taste really start to kind of proliferate you're saying it's after 2000 not before well, uh, that's when uh, things really came together. So there was a uh, beginning actually back in the 40s and 50s, uh, some early information about the particular molecules in foods and drink that, um, that uh, stimulate our sense of smell and give us the experiences we have. Uh, but it was very sparse and uh, kind of hard to uh, make sense of, hard to connect with uh, actual experience, you know, in, in the home, in the kitchen, at the table, and so on. Uh, what really happened was that over the next few decades, two, two different things. One was the, the uh, 
just growing body of information that chemists developed about the the world of uh, the molecules that smell, uh, volatile molecules, molecules that fly through the air so that they can get into our nose and we can detect them. So it was just a, a kind of accumulation of information about that aspect of things. And then on the other hand, uh, the discovery in the uh, 1990s of the receptors in our nose that actually allow us to detect those molecules that are flying through the air. And so those, those two aspects really came together in the 2000s and um, just boosted research in, in all areas related to this uh, tremendously. Wow. And then as I've advanced us to, you know, recent history, I'm fascinated that the and and was very unexpected to me, although when you start reading it, it makes perfect sense. But it's not the way I think that we're oriented to think about it is in a very Stanley Kubrick way. You begin this book um, in outer space. And personally, at first, I was like, what? I was like, never thought about the fact that Earth's elements are actually technically alien. So I wanted to ask you, so um, how does the cosmos factor into what we smell? Well, I so I have a little explaining to do on that score. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I came to writing about food and drink a little bit late. Um, I started out life being really interested in astronomy in in the stars in the cosmos um, so in a way i haven't come that far i've just put a g in front of astronomy and <laughs> uh, but it was a kind of circuitous route um, when i finally got there and i began to think about smells in this in this very general way i i asked myself the question you know why should we be so lucky that these molecules exist at all and when would they first have appeared in uh, in the planet's history? Uh, and I figured, you know, uh, plants have evolutionary histories and animals, and so it probably had to do with with uh, with that. But then I I just wondered, well, I, I wonder if uh, maybe some of these molecules that we can detect on the Earth uh, actually existed long before there was an Earth. So I delved back into my uh, astronomy, and it turns out that uh, radio astronomers can detect the presence of molecules uh, in outer space. And that's how we know a large uh, amount of what we do about the, the origins of the universe. And it turns out that uh, every couple of years, uh, the radio astronomers put together a kind of census of the, the molecules that have been detected in outer space. And I consulted uh, one of the, the, the latest of those censuses. And it turns out that there are several hundred different volatile molecules that have been detected out there. And among them, uh, some are strange and we would never see them on earth but among them are some very familiar things like the the smell of cooked eggs hydrogen sulfide uh, the smell of ammonia uh, the smell of uh, acetic acid vinegar uh, even some uh, esters which are molecules that we typically associate with the smells of fruits which are some of the most delicious things we know uh, so it turns out that it's simply in the kind of physical and chemical nature of the the very basic elements, carbon and hydrogen and sulfur and oxygen, 
these elements in outer space, when they come across each other, will sometimes uh, glom onto each other and, and form these molecules that here on Earth we associate with very particular foods and drinks. Yeah, no, and I think you you that's fascinating to me. But it, it then it's also like when you really start thinking about it, you're like, well, I mean, unless you don't believe in the Big Bang Theory or anything like that, well, if Earth was formed in outer space, then everything on Earth comes in some form from there. Because if Earth just didn't magically pop up as it is, then where the heck did the stuff come from that became the building blocks of Earth? But that's right. Yeah. And that's that's why, you know, people uh, there, there is that that wonderful, true cliche that we're all made of stardust. Uh, you know, the, the elements were created in stars, carbon and hydrogen and uh, all the things that make up our bodies uh, are the product of the the cooking that takes place in in these stars that have been around for billions of years. Um, but it, it's also true that while much of what we find here on Earth uh, is the result of uh, stuff kind of coming together in outer space, uh, once the conditions on Earth were right um, and life began, then life began to generate all kinds of molecules that you don't find in outer space. So what we have to enjoy on Earth is a, a combination of the, the kind of cosmic primordial volatile molecules and um, the creations of plants and animals and microbes and cooks. Well, for those listening who I'm probably at this point are saying, I tuned in for gastronomy, not astronomy. Well, <laughs> well I'll bring it back to food and cooking because I know you know plenty about that. And this sounds like, I know this is kind of a simplistic question, but I think it's an important question. And I think it, I'm really interested to, to hear how you describe it. So can you connect how, and you we you touched on it a bit in the beginning of why you got into the book, but what is it that's important about smell in the relationship to understanding, you know, food and cooking and why cooking works on food and creating foods? Yeah, well, um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, flavor is a very important aspect of our enjoyment of food and our appreciation of food. And much of what we do in cooking is an attempt to create flavor and to direct flavor so that they end up, uh, the foods end up pleasing us um, in ways that we want to be pleased. And flavor is essentially uh, this combination of two sensations, uh, leaving aside texture and that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's primarily taste on the tongue and smell in the nose. And the way I like to think of it is that uh, taste gives us kind of the foundation of a flavor, uh, you know, the, the basics, uh, sweetness, sourness, bitterness, um, savoriness, umami. Um, but, but many foods share those, uh, uh, those qualities. What really distinguishes different foods and, you know, makes the difference in uh, cooking are the volatile molecules, the molecules that are small enough that they actually escape from the foods, fly through the air uh, into our noses where we can detect them. And um, the number of sensations that we can enjoy through the sense of smell is huge by comparison to taste. In fact, scientists are still arguing about how many 
potentially different smells we can we can actually detect the the number might be in the millions it might be in the trillions uh, so that's it's it's such a, a powerful way for us to be able to discriminate you know to tell one thing from another uh, and and that's what makes it such an important aspect of the experience of the flavors of foods and you talk about in in the book both the sort of the evolution of that and it strikes me that probably scientists still don't exactly know why human beings are capable of and and animals actually too such a vast range of smells you do delve into some of the, there is a purpose behind them but would you say is that still unknown of like exactly why we're capable of such a, a wide diversity of smells or uh, perceiving them or no, I, I think there, there's probably a general consensus that um, it's, it's a, a really fundamental way uh, for an animal, and we are, of course, animals, uh, a fundamental way for an animal to know what's going on in the world around it. Because, um, you know, if you think about it, sight and hearing, which are, of course, very important senses, are very indirect. Uh, when we see something, we're not we're not actually encountering that thing. We're encountering uh, uh, photons, bits of light that have been reflected off that thing into our eyes. And when we hear something, we're detecting pressure waves in the air. With the sense of smell, we're actually detecting little bits of the things around us. They're uh, they're being emitted by objects and materials and flying through the air and being detected by us. Um, so it's it's the most direct way we have of um, encountering and evaluating what's in the world around us. And uh, because it is such a, a powerful thing, uh, it makes sense for us as animals to be able to detect as many different possible things um, in, in because we don't know what we're going to encounter. Uh, the world is a very complicated place. The more different mo aspects of it we can detect and recognize, uh, the, the better situated we are to deal with whatever is about to happen. Yeah, so it's really part of uh, an animal's survival capabilities. That's right. Yes. Uh, and uh, not just, you know, I'd, I've been emphasizing kind of the, uh, the potential dangers, uh, you know, uh, predators and things like that. But it's also for many animals and apparently including humans, a way to uh, recognize kin, uh, to be attracted to uh, uh, other others of our kind and um, to reproduce successfully. So it, it, it plays a, a really important role in many different aspects of life, not just in, in food and drink. And to bring it back to cooking, I'm pretty sure we're the only animals who cook. So how did, um, does it, is cooking sort of more of an aside in terms of how it enhances life or survival in terms of smells? Or how do you relate, you know, something we've been talking about, something quite fundamental and primitive to cooking, which seems to, you know, you can survive without cooking. It's not very fun, but. <laughs> well, uh, so th that, that's a really interesting subject in in uh, in the field of evolution these days, human evolution, uh, because um, there are people, for example, um, 
uh, uh, sorry, I'm blanking out on his name for the moment. Um, uh, There is this theory that um, it was actually cooking that uh, allowed us to become Homo sapiens um, because it uh, not only makes foods uh, smell and taste good, which is what we tend to think of these days. But if you compare what uh, an animal has to do to get enough nourishment uh, from the world around it uh, with what we need to do when we're able to cook foods, and cooking not only makes foods delicious, but it actually makes them easier to digest. It makes them uh, more calorie-rich and uh, gives us a lot more nutrition in a in a relatively short period of time and with a relatively uh, small amount of effort um, uh, it can make a tremendous difference in the resources available to our bodies to to develop and so it, there is this sense that uh, that cooking is really at the heart of what makes us human yeah, that's fascinating. And sort of also what makes, in some ways, being a vegan or a vegetarian uh, possible, because certainly the, the advocates are always kind of talking about, well, you can make it flavorful, and then you really enjoy it. So I think uh, I, I'm seeing those connections. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, I think much more difficult are the people, there There was this movement for a while, a few years ago, uh, uh, that emphasized foods that were not cooked you know, the, the, the raw, the raw food. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's really tough because uh, cooking really does make n- nourishment much more readily available to our bodies. And in order to compensate for the absence of that effect uh, by eating raw food, you just have to eat a, an awful lot of it by comparison. Hmm. Well, we're going to come back and we're going to explore more with award-winning Harold McGee, although probably not about raw food, and about the overall science behind smell. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Harold McGee, an expert on the science of food and cooking, about his latest book, 
Nosedive, a field guide to the world's smells. So, Harold, one thing that we started to touch upon, but we haven't talked about in detail that you do in the book is it gets quite chemical. And um, if you've taken organic chemistry, it's helpful, not imperative. You can skip those parts. But there's a lot. It's thorough. And I thought it was helpful without going too far into it is to talk about the chemistry. And, and one of the ways I thought maybe to do that was there's some recurring theme, very frequently con, con, uh, recurring themes. And two of the elements to me that you talk about frequently that are really fundamental to smell are sulfur and carbon, which are also elements that I think most people are familiar with. So could you talk a little bit about how elements like sulfur and carbon, or if you want to choose different ones to add into it, play this key role and or how they play a role in creating even both simple and complex smells? Sure. Uh, so uh, we are creatures of carbon. <laughs> uh, you know, we're built up of uh, a handful of different kinds of materials, uh, proteins and fats, uh, in particular, and also, of course, DNA and RNA and uh, things like that. All these molecules are essentially chains of carbon atoms. So it's really the the ability of carbon to play so uh, gregariously with itself and with other elements that has led to the development of life. And not surprisingly, because uh, carbon is at the heart of living things, it's also at the heart of smells, because smells are um, coming from small bits of the things around us that uh, represent those, those materials that uh, they're uh, being emitted by. So um, carbon is, um, it's, it's kind of the, the raw material for everything. It by itself uh, doesn't really have much in the way of a character. Uh, but if you then begin to combine it with other things, it, it develops characters that are in a way um, uh, determined or influenced by those other elements. So sulfur is um, uh, a really important one in smell. And uh, uh, whenever there's a sulfur uh atom in a smell molecule, it tends to push the smell of that molecule in the direction of egginess, or in, in uh, stronger cases, uh, stinkiness. And if you think of, you know, a, a very freshly cooked egg, uh, if you pull it out of the pot and then really stick it up against your nose and, and breathe in deeply, that's way too much sulfur. <laughs> uh, uh, letting it cool down and then putting it in a salad with something else or, you know, uh, uh, cooking it, uh, making an omelet and then having a bite. That's fine. It's uh, it adds a wonderful element to the experience. But uh, if you if you get too much of it, it's uh, it's unpleasant and uh, sulfur in other um, volatile molecules can take things in in that similar direction of stinkiness, but maybe not so stinky, uh, but definitely standing out from other uh, smells in, in the vicinity. Uh, th then there's uh, nitrogen. Whenever nitrogen is involved, um, it tends to take smells in the direction of ammonia. 
Uh, and ammonia is um, a very simple molecule. It's found in outer space. It's just a nitrogen atom with three hydrogen atoms. If you take that nitrogen atom and then stick it into a molecule that's that's mostly carbon, it brings with it a little bit of that um, ammonia smell. And uh, so those two elements, sulfur and nitrogen, which are uh, especially common in animal bodies compared to plants, uh, tend to give the signature smells of animals, which are often not that pleasant. <laughs> We're basically uh, eggy ammonia beings. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, now, uh, when we eat something like meat, of course, we're we're eating in in a way the the essence of animal, uh, the the muscle tissue of animal, and muscles are what makes uh, muscles are what make animals mobile and uh, kind of defines them. Uh, because the sulfur and nitrogen are again relatively minor elements, and because mostly we're we're detecting other things, they give uh, meatiness its meaty quality. Uh, so in in the right combinations and at the right levels, uh, sulfur and nitrogen can can give uh, you know deliciousness to uh, to smells. But in other situations, when they're too prominent, then they tend to push things in the direction of uh, unpleasantness. Well, and I think you talk about, and, and I think maybe people who've read about smells generally before or into fragrances or things, there's the complexity of smells that are usually a combination of both, as you mentioned, concentration, but then kind of things that on their own can smell bad, but in combinations can smell good and I think people may have heard that you know, people talk about perfumes often having smells of all all use the the baby words like poo and cat pee and you can talk about what what the scientific terms for poo and cat pee but the, those smells are actually present in as you said stinky things but are also present in things that at least humans would perceive as 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 appealing. That's right. And uh, for example, there are flowers uh, like jasmine. Jasmine is the, the prime example. Uh, it's a flower that smells flowery, uh, but also has a fairly prominent presence of a molecule called indole, which, is, which has nitrogen in it and which is more commonly found in feces than in <laughs> plants. <laughs> uh, but it's there in... Um, in tiny quantities it's it's a little bit like a spice you know uh, it it adds something <clears throat> excuse me adds something to the uh to the overall effect without dominating the effect and and making itself the the star of the show and that's actually something worth worth pointing out in general that smells are we tend to think of uh, the smell of jasmine or the smell of an apple or an egg as being uh, something unitary you know it's just that thing but in fact the smell is made up of uh, many many different uh, volatile molecules that come together in our brain to give us the impression of that thing. So smells are, in, instead of being like uh, individual musical notes, they're actually more like chords. There are many different notes that come together to give an overall effect. 
Well, and I think I remember reading just because I have jasmine newly planted outside my back door for for, for reasons <laughs> not wanting to smell any feces. Um, but you talk about, and I'd never, I'm not enough of a gardener to know this. Maybe gardeners who are listeners would know this but i think you say jasmine even emits different amounts of smell of its smell at different times of day for different kind of purposes right that's right that's one of the the fascinating things about uh flowers is that they are designed of course to uh, attract pollinators insects that will carry pollen from from one flower to another and uh, insects uh, hang out in the garden at different times of day and uh, it turns out that if you uh, investigate the volatile molecules that are emitted by different flowers uh, and then look at which pollinators they're uh, attracting the ones that um, are open during the day, make volatiles that are appealing to bees and um, creatures like that, uh, butterflies. Uh, the ones that uh, tend to open at night are attracting moths, which are nocturnal. And uh, these different insects have different uh, preferences in smells. And so uh, the, the smells of um, typically white flowers, uh, because at night uh, insects really can't see much better than we can, uh, so they don't bother to, uh, flowers don't bother to make pigments, uh, the ones that bloom at night. Um, instead, they put a lot of effort into um, making the volatiles that will attract moths. Uh, the flowers that are open during the day are attracting different creatures and, and use the sense of sight as well as smell endlessly fascinating there are so many things i'd i'd like to cover so i'm going to try to streamline it one question i wanted to ask you because I'm, I'm skipping over some things in the interest of time but one other thing that i think you delve into and this is really more back to the science than the direct connection to food and cooking but that on some level there's whole this debate about artificial plastic stuff and plant-based but if you really put it all together Petroleum products at one point in the cycle of life on Earth were plant-based. They were some kind of plant or animal. They were natural, and then they got compressed down into something. So what's the difference between a natural smell or plant-based smell that sounds all nice and healthy and artificial ones that are used commonly in cheap products and derived from petroleum products? Well, the, the basic difference is that uh, the smells that we think of as natural, so-called, uh, are made by the, the creatures around us, uh, mostly plants, uh, microbes as well, yeasts, for example. Um, but uh, art, uh, again, so so-called artificial smells are made intentionally by chemists in, in uh, factories. So chemists figured out back in the, actually back in the uh, 19th century, long time ago, how to synthesize molecules like uh, vanillin, the, the key component in the smell of vanilla. And so uh, these uh, artificially 
produced, manufactured, maybe that's the, the better term, manufactured uh, volatile molecules have been with us for a very long time. And uh, to me, represent uh, a, a really remarkable um, um, uh, they're, they're, they're admirable in the sense that it took such ingenuity for human beings to figure out, first of all, what these things were, uh, you know, just to know that there are molecules uh, and then to identify them and then to figure out ways to reproduce them without the original plant. To me, that's a tremendous achievement. Um, well, and it's you. That was 19th century, right? It, or the earliest parts, which is well before when you were talking about in the 90s when they started to figure out the, more about the science of smells in terms of what goes in your nose. Exactly. Uh, Chemists uh, and scientists in general, uh, and even just ordinary people who were interested in kind of following their nose before we knew how the nose works, uh, understood a tremendous amount about um, about these things uh, very early on. And so the the manufacturing of smell molecules is, uh, you know, a, an inevitable outgrowth of that knowledge and that understanding. Um, and I think that they have their place. Uh, if, if you take the example of vanilla, for example, uh, vanilla is a, a plant that only grows in the tropics. It's not very easy to cultivate. Uh, it's subject to all kinds of diseases. And so the world production of vanilla is a tiny fraction of the, um, uh, the amount of vanillin, the smell of vanilla, uh, that actually actually gets into our foods uh, every day. Uh, so without manufactured vanillin, uh, people would not be enjoying vanilla. It would be a much more exotic, expensive thing. Um, plain vanilla would be a, an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that's such a great example. So we've talked about, and the book goes into a lot more detail, about smells being actual volatile molecules they, they they're microscopic but they have a physical being and presence a vanillin molecule from a vanilla bean from madagascar and a manufactured one molecularly the volatile that goes up your nose is it that look exactly the same uh they do yes uh-huh uh now you can uh, you can distinguish uh natural and artificial sometimes um by the particular isotope of the uh, of the elements, because when plants live in the soil and so on, they they um, take up and uh, modify things that can be slightly different uh, from what a chemist is doing in a in a laboratory or a manufacturing plant. So there might be, you know, one neutrons difference between this this carbon atom and that carbon atom. But otherwise, if you just look at it as um, as a chemical formula, the chemical formulas are identical. Fascinating. Now, we've been talking a lot about what goes up your nose. And that's something I'm still, as a, as a kind of neat freak, clean freak, a little bit uncomfortable with that the idea that smell is not just a perception, it's a literal physical transference. And especially given COVID, where we're much more conscious of not trying to inhale things, is there something about smells that could be 
dangerous or are they so teeny tiny on the molecular level it's not really a relevant concern? Well, uh, it, it does turn out that um, smells, smell molecules are, they're foreign to the human body. Uh, you know, they're not part of us. They're part of the world around us. And uh, it's important for us to know that they're there. And so that's why we have the sense of smell. But once we inhale them and register them, our bodies uh, excrete them. They have, uh, the body has various ways of taking that stuff and getting rid of it so that we can be ready to experience the, the next moment. And it turns out that um, as the, those mole smell molecules are making their way from our nose uh, to uh, being excreted, uh, they can cause problems. And so some smells, even though they're pleasant, uh, are, are actually not good for the body. And so we, we should actually be aware of them and, and know that that's the case. And that's true for a lot of um, uh, uh, petroleum-based uh, things that are such a big part of our lives these days, you know, solvents and cleaning agents and gasoline fuels and things like that, which have very specific smells and which uh, we should take not as, we, we shouldn't savor them the way that we savor the smells of food and drink. We should recognize them as signs that our bodies are taking in things that are not good for us and we should avoid them. I guess that's the general advice to teenagers about why you shouldn't smell glue, even though it might make you feel good for a minute. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's, it, it is a pleasant smell. I mean, I, I made a lot of model airplanes when I was a kid and I, <laughs> oh, that's I really, a great smell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In moderation. Yeah. I, I liked it, but, uh, but now I know that, uh, I shouldn't like it too much. And how do we excrete them? Is it sort of like the idea, like when you eat a lot of garlic, it actually comes out of your pores or? Uh, well, what what usually happens is that the, the body attaches the smell molecule to uh, a molecule that is part of the body. It's often uh, a sugar molecule or a piece of a protein molecule. And then those, uh, those molecules are kind of uh, tagged as things to be gotten rid of. And so they, they follow that process. The problem is that sometimes that, uh, that tagging and that interaction with our body's systems um, can go a little haywire. And that's when we can end up uh, actually um, creating molecules in our bodies that damage our own DNA. And, and that's why we have to be careful about what it is that we take in. So I think you're saying they're excreted through all the different ways. It, it's not all one way. It, it could be all the different ways the body gets rid of substances, whether it's saliva or sneezing or pooing or peeing. or. Yeah, most of the time it's it's in the urine. Uh, yeah, that's the, the, the main route of excretion. <laughs> and on that <laughs> note, we're going to take our last break and we're going to come back and Harold is going to share his Julia moment and we'll find out We'll be on pins and needles, whether that involves a uh, smell or not. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. You're welcome to tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show, about all the smells, and also please share your ideas for future guests. 
If you didn't receive it as a holiday gift, if Santa was not so good to you this year, treat yourself to the new book of Julia's quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People, and Other Wisdom. It's out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she might have inspired them in their career. All right, Harold, what's your Julia moment? <laughs> well, uh, so I should say that I, I first met Julia in the 1980s um, at meetings of the uh, International Association of Culinary Professionals, at which she was a regular. And uh, Shirley Corrier and I used to give uh, sessions that we called The Doctor Is In. <laughs> and we would uh, sit up in front of people and um, invite questions, uh, problems that people had come up with or uh, things that they didn't quite understand. And it was basically a Q&A for, uh, for an hour. And uh, almost every year... <laughs> <laughs> right in the front row, right on the aisle, would be Julia. <laughs> with Ready to hand... challenge the experts. Yep, yep. With her own questions and then with follow-up questions <laughs> to our answers to other people's questions. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that was a little intimidating for me when I, you know, first started attending. Uh, but it soon became clear that, you know, what she was really interested in was understanding as much as possible, uh, as much as possible about as many different aspects of cooking as possible. And that's kind of what I was doing there at, as well. And so uh, we ended, Shirley and I ended up just loving those uh, sessions because we knew it was going to be lively <laughs> With, with Julia there to ask the questions. But then I, I have to say that my, my own specific personal moment came uh, in the 1990s when at a uh, meeting of uh, food writers, I ended up sitting next to Julia at dinner and there was no one sitting across from us for some reason. And so uh, we basically spent the whole dinner talking with each other. And the remarkable thing about that dinner for me was that we never once talked about food. <laughs> uh, she was so much more up on um, uh, movies and theater and even television shows. You know, I, I felt ashamed not to be able to. <laughs> not that to be she able knew to more about network television than you did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I have to say in my defense at the time, I had a couple of young kids and so I wasn't spending that much time, <laughs> didn't, didn't have well, that and much they, time. And to, they didn't have Netflix to enjoy. So exactly, exactly. But that, that again, uh, just showed to me that, uh, you know, there was more to life than understanding food and cooking and so much more to enjoy and to, to share with other people. 
That's so nice. And and if I could bring that full circle, I'll share with the audience that I've met Harold once in person at the Oxford Food Symposium when I just accidentally sat down next to him and in the course of a conversation about I don't know what, realized who he was and how many chefs and food writers, you know, admire your work so much, Harold, who that they would give their left arm to be in my position. And I was trying to like, how do I make the most of this conversation? And and um, I think that's when I learned about your 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 new book. So I think the those those moments are are quite wonderful and mean are are so different to the each person on on this either side of the conversation. That's right. Yeah, and it's uh, one of the reasons I can't wait for uh, for the world to change so that once again we can be sitting next to each other at dinner and and having those kinds of conversations. And I'll give a shout out to the Oxford Symposium because if if you are an admirer of some of the world's best food writers, attend. You get prime access. They could be sitting next to you in a a very hot dining hall. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for those lovely uh, Julia moments. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Todd. It's been a great pleasure. And for me as well. And thanks for everyone else. We've taken you from the cosmos and back again and to good smells and bad spells. So thank you for listening. And we wish all of you a brighter, healthier, safer, and prosperous 2021. Again, the book is Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World Smells by Harold McGee, out now from Penguin Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. You can keep up with Harold. He's at Harold underscore McGee. M-C-G-E-E on Twitter. And you can also go to CuriousCook.com to learn more about his work. Keep up with the Foundation and new podcast episodes in 2021. If you're not already following us, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. And it's at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.